0: Into this building this morning. My name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to have you guys with us this morning. I'm wearing the Fred Rogers cardigan again, which means it's going to get very shepherd-like in here, very pastoral in nature. So, if you thought I was going to bring the thunder this morning, you can relax. It's Christmas. It'll be it'll be fine. Um, I'm excited. We're only a couple weeks out from Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. I don't know. Where you find yourself this morning, we're going to talk about some of that uh, even as we begin to unearth this morning's passage. We're currently in the heart of an Advent series. For those of you who didn't grow up in the church or maybe grew up in a less liturgical setting, just a couple of things to note about Advent if you weren't around for the first couple of weeks of this series. Back in the fourth century AD, the church began to, to practice the celebration of this season of Advent. A celebration that starts the fourth Sunday leading up to Christmas and finds its final consummation when we get to Christmas. And so a couple of weeks ago, we entered into the 2016 season of Advent. That word Advent, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. It's a celebration of the coming of Jesus, of his arrival into the world. It's a celebration of his first coming and it's the anticipation of his second coming. We're after both of those things. Essentially, we're talking about the constant reminder in the midst of the busyness, in the midst of all the distractions, that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. If we could simplify what we're after over the course of of this series, that he's better than than all the trinkets, he's better than all the toys, he's better than all the tinsel. You can put all those together and he's better than all of it combined. He's the greatest gift that we've ever been given, that at great cost to himself, uh, God has purchased a people uh, for himself. By way of the blood of Christ. Christmas is the celebration of a miracle, really. It's a celebration of the second person of the Godhead clothing himself in flesh. That'll make your head hurt if you think about it long enough. It's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of the incarnation, uh, from the Latin word meaning becoming flesh. That I've said this from the very beginning of this series: the God uh, who created everything had to be taught how to spell the very things that he made. He had to be taught how to say his own name. The God who carved out mountains and valleys had to be taught how to work with wood as a carpenter. The most exalted being in all the universe entered the slums of human history by way of the feeding troughs of Bethlehem. That the God of Christianity, Christmas tells us, is not a God who's removed from the story he's authoring. He's a God who is willing to condescend and enter into that very story as a character, which is quite amazing. That's what we mean when we throw out that that name Emmanuel, God with us. We began this series a couple weeks ago. If you were here in a garden, uh, God's first declaration to us as human beings that he would send a hero to rescue us from our sin and ourselves, a future baby in a manger, a future crucified savior, the light entering into the darkness by way of the humble trappings of a smelly stable surrounded by blue-collar field workers and pagan astrologers and magicians, which is God's way of saying I'm not here for those who think they have it all together. I mean I'm here for the sinners and tax collectors. I'm here for the pagans and prostitutes. I'm here for the rejects and the ragamuffins, those who have, come, who have come to the end of themselves and declared themselves to be spiritually bankrupt and are looking for a righteousness not their own. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus came to give hope to the hopeless. He came to give love to the unlovable. He came to give joy to the despairing. He came to to give peace to the anxiety-ridden. One way you could say it is to say that that baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger would go on to deliver the death blow to the dragons of Satan, sin, and self. That baby resting in a feeding trough in Bethlehem would go on to sign the check for your ransom and my ransom in his own blood. But the story of Christmas, we talked about this last week, is not just a story of our ransom, of our rescue. Jesus came not only to save us from sin's penalty, but also from sin's power. Yes, he came to ransom us, but he also came to make us clean. That's part of the wonder of Christmas. That's part of what we celebrate, our refinement, our sanctification. It's part of the rescue mission of God, that he loves us so much that he wouldn't just convert us and leave us on our own. Rather, he lovingly melts away all of the impurities within us in order to make our hearts ultimately happy in him. And so this morning, we continue this story. We, we connect the dots of uh, hope and love, which we talked about the last couple weeks, to this idea of joy proclaimed. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to a book that I'm sure you read off in the woods somewhere on your own this week in your time with the Lord, Zephaniah. Chapter 3 is where we will be, verses 14 through 20. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our Christmas gift to you. Take that home with you so that you can spend time reading about the Christmas story on your own in the coming weeks. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in and get going this morning. God, what a, what a great opportunity we have this morning. At first glance... We probably would not think of Zephaniah chapter 3 when we think of declarations of your poetic love for us. And yet, uh, we have something beautiful in this morning's passage uh, that we get to spend time soaking in this morning. God, I pray ultimately that as we leave this place this morning that we find our song is a little louder than it was when we came in. That we find that our song is a little more readily connected to the affections of our hearts for you, that our singing is not as contrived as it was as we walked in the door this morning. God, ultimately that you would awaken our hearts to the wonder of who you are and who you are for us. God, would you do that this morning by the power of your spirit? We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, as we were in the book of Malachi, we believe that context is important around here. We believe that Every verse is written in the context of a paragraph. every paragraph is written in the context of a chapter, and so forth, and so on. We try our best not to haphazardly take verses and just kind of slap them proverbially on the, the side of coffee mugs. Uh, rather, we want to unearth what those verses actually mean in their context. And so, similar to last week as we were in the book of Malachi, if we're going to dive into a passage of Scripture found in the Book of Zephaniah it would probably be helpful to know at least a couple things about this book of the Bible, right? And so if you were around for our study as we worked our way through the book of Daniel this fall, you might remember that the book of Daniel paints this picture of God's people in exile in Babylon. You remember that, right? If you don't remember that, I did a terrible, terrible job over the course of those three months. But what many may not be aware of is that in the Old Testament, you actually have the story of two exiles, After Solomon's reign as king, the the kingdom was divided into the north and, and the south. And so you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The northern kingdom was exiled to Assyria around 722 B.C. The southern kingdom was exiled about a century and a half later, around 586 B.C. And so Zephaniah's prophecy, what we're about to dive into this morning, actually takes place between those two exiles in the context of the southern kingdom. So Track with me here. The original audience of this book of the Bible that we're about to dive into was made up of those in the south who had seen their neighbors in the north exiled out of the land because they had refused to turn back to the Lord. And so the, those in the south had yet to experience that, that type of exile for themselves. This is just a little bit before Daniel and his friends are taken away. From the home that they grew up in and knew and loved. Judah has yet to experience the Babylonian takeover. Jerusalem is still standing. King Josiah, the king of Judah, has come across uh, the law of God and the temple of God. It had been lost for quite some time. He, he gets a vision for the people. This vision of, of the reforming of their worship. Of, of the reestablishment of their hearts in the Lord. And so the question for Judah, the people in the southern kingdom, is this. Will we end up just like our friends in the north, or will we return to the Lord? And so, as with many of the prophetic books of the Bible, you have an oracle of of judgment, this message of this declaration of judgment, and a declaration of, of salvation. On the one hand, you have this vivid imagery of God's judgment, which is meant to awaken God's people out of their slumber, similar to what we talked about last week with the book of Malachi. It's meant to wake up the spiritual zombies, the walkers, so to speak. But you also have this message of hope, this message of restoration in the book of Zephaniah, which is where we pick up the story this morning. So you can, you can breathe easy. Yes, we're going to kind of bypass the, the oracles of judgment and move right to the good stuff, the good news. That for those who will humble themselves, turn to the Lord, and put their hope in him, that there really is. There's good news. But the weird thing about this passage is that it doesn't begin with news, but rather with a command. Look at verse 14. It says this. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Verse 14 is all about worship. It's a command, a command to sing, a command to shout, a command to rejoice, a command to exult, and not a singing, not a shouting, not a rejoicing, not an exulting absent of the heart, but rather with the fullness of our hearts. The kind of singing, the kind of shouting, the kind of rejoicing that's not contrived, but rather is simply an overflow of our affection, which is how true praise actually works, right? I mean, the heart sings of that in which it delights, which is why you can sit in a sports stadium on any given Saturday or Sunday this time of year and see people chanting by the thousands until they lose their voices, It's why you can go to a show and watch your favorite band or artist and get caught up singing at the top of your lungs to your favorite lyrics. And my guess would be that none of those things, when you find yourself in those moments, are driven by a sense of obligation, are they? Of course not. The heart sings of that in which it delights. Another way to say it, that which we love, we must speak of. We must praise. Otherwise, our joy is left incomplete. There's there's joy in the actual expressing, in the actual telling, you might say. C.S. Lewis, the author of The Chronicles of Narnia, there's my shameless plug for the week, in his reflections on the Psalms, says this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Think about that for a second. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in a stadium watching your favorite team and to be told that you're not allowed to open your mouth and express anything for the entirety of that game? Imagine what it would be like to be in an arena or an intimate uh, venue, watching your favorite band or artist and being told that you can't sing along with a single lyric, the entirety of your experience. That would be, that'd be weird, wouldn't it? Because we're made to sing, we're made to express, we're made to respond to that which we love. Now, verse 14 is a call to worship, and and if we're honest, it's a little bit troubling, isn't it? Um, I, I'll be honest with you. I had this naive idea in mind that I would come in this Sunday morning and my heart would be as aligned as it's ever been to the word of God and to, to the song that we're singing. As if I could come up from a position of having it all together, having uh, strength in terms of having worked through all this for myself to declare to the masses that this is what it looks like. God in his kindness to me this week uh, just just had a moment as if to say, son I love you too much I, I I need you to see that this sermon's for you like you your heart's not there you 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 uh, declare contrived words often you you misfire there's so many heart misfires in your life and that's true for me I don't know about you but my my song oftentimes in this place is not a natural overflow of my affection for the Lord it's not it's not a delight in him that must be expressed oftentimes we were my family and I at a drive-in theater at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. I know that sounds weird. If you want to talk about it later, I can kind of unpack what that, what that's like. Um, in some sense, it's as redneck as it sounds. Um, but part of that experience was we sat before a screen with, with our girls in the front seat in our laps uh, with sippy cups and snack packs watching the original cartoon version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And toward the end of that movie, if you've seen that movie, you know that uh, as the gifts and the trees and the stockings and the roast beast has all been taken away from them, they wake up on Christmas morning uh, to this declarative song surrounding the, the city Christmas tree. And it's, it's loud and it's glorious and it's beautiful. And it, it declares that the merriment and magic of Christmas is more important than all the stuff, right? And, and as I watched that, there was something that went through my mind. I thought, you know, the church has experienced both greater loss than the who's ever could possibly imagine experiencing. Some of you bring your loss into this place this morning. But the church has also experienced a greater hope, greater than just the magic of Christmas, the merriment of Christmas. We celebrate a Savior who came to rescue us from that brokenness, that darkness, that hopelessness, that loss. And so really and truly, our hearts if they were in tune, it would sound much more glorious than what you hear at the end of that cartoon. And so what do we do with that? How do we explain that? I think part of the disconnect has to do with the brokenness itself, right? We go through things that, that uh, just, just kind of sap the joy out of us. We experience things that, that tend to uh, bring our joy down a peg. And if you experience enough of those over and over again, you just kind of find yourself in a really dark, joyless place. Another explanation is just simply that we live in the time of the already and the not yet. Already, Jesus has come. He's inaugurated some pretty glorious things. We've talked about those things. We'll talk about them again this morning. But we're also not yet the glorified versions of ourselves. So sometimes we really do come in and we're like a a car heater in the middle of winter. It takes us 15 minutes for our hearts to warm up. Isn't that weird that God would call us to gather together as the church and to sing with the fullness of our hearts, knowing that the very challenge that we would face is that our hearts just take some time to even get there um, in certain moments. What do we do with that? Our hearts are fickle. And it's not that, it's not that sometimes we're singing and sometimes we're not that, that's a deception to, to think that way. We're always singing. It's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 1. It's not that sometimes we worship and other times we don't. We never cease to worship. We never cease to, to sing, to express. It's just that sometimes our affections are placed in the created rather than the creator. Sometimes the song we sing is a, a song of praise to something less than or other than God. God. And so going back to last week, this is where the dots connect. We need the refining fire of God's love to melt away the impurities in us, to pry our heart's grip from those lesser things so that we might find ourselves happy in him. And as that happens, the singing, the shouting, the rejoicing, the exulting in the Lord more and more begins to match what's actually true of our hearts, which is what we want, right? And so this is the question that comes to mind for me personally. What do I not yet know, or what have I forgotten, that if I fixed my mind and heart on long enough would increase my affection for the Lord? Let me ask that question again. What do I not yet know, or what have I forgotten, that if I fixed my mind and heart on long enough would increase my affection for for the Lord. Another way to ask the question is to, to say it this way What do I need to hear this morning that would warm my heart in such a way that my disconnected, contrived singing would be transformed into a warm outpouring of a delight in God? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Thankfully, God doesn't leave us without the answer to that question. He doesn't just give us verse 14 and then say, Figure it out. If you skip ahead to verse 17, you actually find the answer. Let's look at that verse, and then we'll kind of see the ripple effect surrounding that verse of what God's doing in this passage. Verse 17 says this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let me me give away the ending before we unpack it. What could possibly warm our hearts in such a way that our disconnected, contrived singing would be transformed into a warm outpouring of a delight in God? The answer is this. Soaking in the beautiful truth that God himself sings loudly over us. Verse 17 tells us he's mighty to save. Going back to the first week of this series, the promised hero has come and made a way where there is no way. That the baby in a manger is the crucified Savior who rescues his people from the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. All that's true. And he, he doesn't just save us from our hopeless situation. Look at what verse 17 says. He rejoices over us with gladness. That's nuts. God delights in you. That's something to sing about. For those of us who struggle to believe that God could ever love us, some of you brought that in the room this morning. Verse 17 says, he not only loves you, he delights in you. He rejoices over you. He sings over you. And not just at a, at a whisper's decibel level. He sings loudly over you. Like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, he puts a ring on your finger. He robes you in the righteousness of his son. He kills the fattened calf and he throws the party to end all parties over your salvation. That's pretty amazing. That's how how God feels about you, not because you've impressed him, but because Jesus has impressed him on your behalf. That's what the gospel declares, that we've been robed in the righteousness of Christ. If you're a Christian, when the father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son and he's delighted by what he sees. And he's so delighted that he can't help but break out into song. If anyone can make sense of the implications of that, I would love that cup of coffee with you. If you could explain to me what happens when God opens his mouth and begins to sing. Because that just blows my mind. I mean, we're talking about the same God whose spoken word is so powerful that he said, let there be light. And light looked at God like a mafia don and said, you got it. Like, I don't have any choice in the matter. I am going to now exist because you said, let it be so. That's the creation story. That same God whose spoken word holds that kind of power sings over you. That's nuts. What's the impact of that? I have no clue, but here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that it's something that if I had even a surface level understanding of, would cause me to sing, would cause me to shout, would cause me to rejoice, would cause my heart to dance with deep affection for the Lord. Now, this side of heaven, we may never understand The power in that song and what's actually happening is as God declares over us his love. But God is kind in that he offers us an opportunity to see some of the lyrics of that song, which is what the rest of this passage is. Surrounding verse 17, you have this kind of lyrical ripple effect, you might say. The words that make up this beautiful song of hope and salvation for the people of God. Look at verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. That's a lyric in God's song. If you're a Christian, your judgment day has already occurred. It's over, said, and done with. Jesus went on trial for you. He stood in the courtroom that you and I should have stood in. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no guilty verdict. Jesus bore your guilty verdict in your place if you're a Christian. Not only that, we don't have to live constantly seeking uh, the the validating verdict from others and from God. The world says you're always on trial. The gospel says, trial's over, Christian. Court is no longer in session for those who trust in Jesus. That's a beautiful lyric. The song goes on to say, he has cleared away your enemies, that he, he truly has delivered the death blow to the darkened dragons our enemies of Satan's sin and death. Isn't it ironic, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Isn't it ironic that the very act that caused Satan to declare victory, namely the crucifixion of the Son of God, was the very act that delivered the death blow to his own head? Isn't it ironic that death began to die when Jesus died? That at the cross we see the death of death and the death of Christ your greatest enemies are losing power right now as we speak. Sickness, sin, disease, death. They don't have the final word. God has the final word. Jesus is the final word. The song goes on to say at the end of verse 15. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. This is a glorious lyric for those who struggle with what we talked about last week. The belief that God has abandoned you. That he's like the horizon. He's always out of reach. Verse 15 declares that he's closer than you think. That he has not abandoned you. That he's in your midst. Make no mistake. There was a time when we were fatherless. You and I. Pagans in a back alley diving into the, the dumpsters of depravity you might say. But if you're a Christian. By the precious blood of Jesus. Who we celebrate this time of year. You have been reconciled to God. He's your Abba. You've been transformed, in Paul's words, from a child of wrath to a child of God. It's incredible. He's near. Even in those moments that it doesn't feel like it, he's there. He's as close as his indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus has purchased the nearness of God for you. The song goes on to say, verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. That the hero to come will not only crush Satan's sin and death, he will cripple the, fa- the power of fear in the hearts of his people. That right now fear is being sapped of its strength because Jesus has come. That perfect love is casting it out. God is strengthening the weakened hands of his people. If that's you today, you need to hear this, that he is enabling you to persevere by the power of his indwelling spirit through and in your weakness. The song goes on to say, verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. It's not that God's people don't mourn. It's just that we mourn differently. We mourn as those who have hope, as the apostle Paul says. The song continues, verse 19, Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Oppression like fear is being sapped of its strength right now. God is rescuing the lame. He's gathering the outcast into the fold. What about that lyric that has to do with God changing our shame into praise? That's a beautiful lyric for those who bring shame into this place this morning, who feel like you're never good enough for others, for God. Those who struggle with humiliation. The gospel declares that that baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger would go on to bear your sin and shame. That he was spit upon, he was mocked, his beard was plucked out. He was stripped naked and left for dead in a public display of humiliation. All so that you and I could stand unashamed before our maker. That God really does consider you to be his beloved. No need to run and hide anymore. God loves you at your worst. You don't hear anything else I say this morning. Hear me when I say that. God loves you at your worst because of Christ and who he is for you. that's the lyric that speaks to me this morning, personally. The song goes on to say, verse 20, At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Uh, verse 20 speaks of this this in-gathering, this being brought in. Yes, there's a, an element of it that has to do with Israel post-exile, but there's also this gospel reality to this, this global declaration of the song of God as he brings more people around that proverbial tree to sing of his glory and goodness. Coming back to verse 17. Let me just read those words one more time. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Isn't that song amazing? song on full display as you peer in on the humble trappings of a smelly stable. Christmas, it really is, it's the declaration of God's song over you and over me. In the coming of Christ, all of those lyrics find their declarative yes. Does that mean that all of the lyrics of God's song have been fully consummated? Of course not. We do live in a world that's fallen, it's broken, it's filled with sadness. But yes, fear is being sapped of its strength, but it's still here. Yes, the death blow has been delivered to those darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death, but but they're still here. Though God is in our midst, we struggle at times to feel his presence. And on and on we could go. This, This world's filled with some very, very sad lyrics. But the beauty of the Bible and God's redemptive story is there really is coming a day. As one commentator I spent some time this week with pointed out, I don't know if you're like me, um, my, my heart just ebbs and flows this time of year. I, I really do, I I get excited, but I temper my excitement because I know that December 26th is coming. I know I'm gonna wake up the day after Christmas and look at that tree, and I'm gonna have to find a way to get rid of it because there's no place for it anymore. I know I'm gonna have to put away all the shiny trinkets and the nutcrackers and all those things that that make our, House even more of a home this time of year. All those things are going to have to be put back into their boxes. You're going, man, what a Debbie Downer this morning, Jamie. (laughs) Right? Maybe that resonates with you. A letdown. It's almost as if in the rhythms of the Advent season, God's reminding us that this is not it. That there's coming a day when Jesus returns that will not be followed by a December 26th. Won't that be glorious? No no, taking down the tree when Jesus comes back. And so we long for the second coming of Christ this morning, a Christmas that will never end. We, we long for that with the anticipation of a child waiting for Christmas, hopefully, as God aligns our hearts to the reality of what it'll, what it'll be like when he really does make everything sad and But we also celebrate his first coming. Because without his first coming, there is no song to be sung over us at all. Jesus came to put a song in the mouth of God. Think about that. A song of delight over you, his beloved, if you're in Christ. If you don't have a song for the Lord this morning, a delight in him that must be expressed, this is what what I'd sit with as a, a diagnostic question. Where am I failing to hear God's song over me? What lyric do I need to hear this morning in order to tune my heart in to God? What part of God's song do I need to soak in so that my heart might be warmed with delight? Think think about this passage. For for some, it's a guilt issue, right? How can God rejoice over a guilty sinner like me with singing? If that's you, you need to soak in verse 15 of God's song. The trial is over. There's, There's no court in session for those who trust in Christ Jesus. Or maybe it's a nearness issue. Maybe you go, you know, how can God rejoice over me with singing when it feels like he's so far away? And if that's you, you need to soak also in verse 15 of God's song. He's closer than you think. He hasn't abandoned you. He's in your midst. Or maybe it's a shame issue. Maybe, maybe your question is this. How can God rejoice over me with singing when I feel so unclean? If that's you, you need to soak in verse 19. Of God's song, Jesus bore not only your sin but your shame, so that you could stand unashamed before your Maker. You've been invited in, like the son in the parable of the prodigal. He loves you. On and on we could go with God's song, unearthing where our hearts are this morning. It's the song of the gospel, really. It's it's very simple. When when we talk about preaching the gospel to yourself, all we really mean is that we want you to soak in God's song over you. Whatever that looks like, wherever you are, whatever angle on the gospel that you're experiencing a a misfire of, of doubt or sin or unbelief, with the hope that as we do so, our song becomes more and more of an overflow of delight in the one who delights in us. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, Here, in this passage, by the pen of inspiration, the God of love is pictured as married to his church, and so rejoicing in her that he rejoices over her with singing. If God sings, shall not we sing? And so, this morning, I invite you to tune your ear to to God's beautiful song to see that song on display in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, to hope for the final fulfillment of every lyric in the second coming of the Savior. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We do so here by taking the bread and and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing Jesus' broken body, the cup representing his shed blood. Uh, Before we do that, uh, we're, we're going to attempt to respond as God's people and I know this is a little weird because I don't want it to be contrived. If if there's a place that you really uh, need to sit and spend time with the Lord and, and hear his song over you, then I, I want I want you to have that space to do that. But if your heart's moved by Zephaniah 3 in such a way that even right now you're going, I'm ready to sing, let's do this. We're, we want to do that. And so uh, coming out of uh, this morning's message, uh, we're going to sing before we take communion. We're going to take time to do that as an opportunity to declare that the who's down in Whoville really do have nothing on the church because we have a greater song to sing because a greater song has been sung over us in Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I invite you into that song to simply bring nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith to the foot of the cross and to trust in Jesus and become a part of that great ingathering around that proverbial Christmas tree. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.